John's gospel in the opening words that you are the living word of God. And we come before you and we confess it's hard for our sinful human minds to fully appreciate the greatness and goodness of who you are and how we need your help. Um, And so would you give us that help? Would you give us eyes of faith so that we can begin to see how great you are, how good you are, how kind and loving you are, how much you've done and accomplished for us, Lord, uh, that we would see all encouragement that we need, all strength, all courage is found in you along with all light and life. And so we just ask that you would help us, Lord, and we just thank you for this time. In your name we pray, amen. All right, well, sorry. We're going through the person of Christ tonight, which is almost impossible for anyone to sort of do in let alone 30 or 40 minutes, but we'll do the best we can. And the word of God is really what we need to be in in order to appreciate who Jesus really is. Um, And before we get there, can I have my first slide? All right. Where Ted took us before was this truth that really our greatest need is to know God. And how are we to know God? It's through his written word that he's given. And it's through the gospel. And we'll see today it's through his son. But as we get into scripture, it's really important for us to understand what God's word is. There are plenty of Bible scholars who live completely corrupt and broken lives and godless relationships. They know an awful lot about the Bible, but they have no relationship with God whatsoever. It's all academic knowledge. And as we go through our Bibles, I think it's really important. Why did God give us his word? It's his love letter to us. He has given us his word so that we could know him. Okay, and, and so as we walk through the scriptures and we read through them, and this is one of the reasons we're going through the fundamentals of the faith, it's really important that we understand what our anchor is, what our compass is. When you go out into the woods, as I know some of you have experienced, typically, hopefully, you take a compass, and hopefully you know which direction is north. And if you don't know your direction and you don't have a map, ultimately, you're going to get lost. And the history of the world and the history of the church is one of getting lost. That's what we celebrated last Sunday, the celebration of the Reformation, Martin Luther's recovery of God's word and the gospel. Because the church, as great as it is, it gets lost on a regular basis. It loses its direction. As we come to God's word, you can read God's word and not know who God is. You can read God's word and go and read portions and think, this is great, this is wise, this is good, this is helpful, this is great advice, great insight and observations on human relationships. You can go and say, okay, I've got this problem. What portion do I go to find out how to deal with debt, how to deal with finances, how to deal with relationships with my wife? You can go through all of that and you can find that. And you might even benefit. But at the end of the day, if you don't know God, at the end of it, it's completely useless, right? Because it's God's love letter to us that he's given to us. And so as you walk through and you read different portions of the Bible, it's necessary that you understand with a compass what it's pointing to. And the purpose of God's word ultimately is to point us to his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the entirety of scripture is given to us for. 
from God the Father's incredible love for His Son, but His love for you, that you would know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I do this, and I do this with my boys. I go through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's helpful to understand the map, the layout. It's organized there for a particular reason to walk us through. And whenever you're in a particular part of the Bible, you need to understand where Jesus is. It's not like we're looking for Jesus under every rock, but you need to understand how does this relate to knowing God and to knowing Christ. And so it helps me as I go through the Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant, to divide it up into fives and twelves. The first five books are the five books of Moses, and they lay the foundation of who God is in the beginning of the story. The next, there are twelve histories. Okay? Twelve histories of the kingdom of God in the people and of Israel. Okay? Starting with Joshua and going through, and that's how your Bible is organized. I think of the 12 tribes of Israel. I just use it as a reminder. And then after the histories, we come to five books of poetry and praise. Right? So similar to the five books of Moses, five books of poetry and praise, Psalms divided up into five as well. And then after the five, you go to prophets, right? Am I right? And you have how many of the major prophets? Lamentations isn't really a major prophet, but it's written by a major prophet. Five books again, like the five books of Moses. And after the five books of Moses, like the 12 tribes of Israel, you have 12 prophets who are the minor prophets. And from the major prophets to the minor prophets, they are calling God's people to repent and turn back and place their trust in the God of the first five books. Okay, the God who saved them and delivered them out of being slaves in Egypt and brought them to become a people of God. And then when you come to the New Testament, okay, and all of that in the Old Testament is a preparation for the cross. It's a preparation that we cannot save ourselves. We need a king and a savior who can save us. Well, there's only one who can do that. It's the true son of God. Okay, And so that brings us to the new covenant. So all of that from Genesis to the 12 prophets and that call to repentance and the need, the need for someone to come and make us right with God because we can't do it. It's all a preparation for the promises of the coming of a son. All of that is pointing us. And then everything that follows in the New Testament is pointing back to the son who's come. And so you walk through, you've got five narratives that give or bear witness about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The first four are Gospels, about his life before his death. And the last, the book of Acts, is the testimony of the apostles bearing witness of the Christ who has risen from the grave. And after you have those first five, then you come to the epistles to the churches, right? And the first 13 in our Bible are from the Apostle Paul. And then the eight epistles that follow after are from the other apostles. And then our scripture closes with Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which documents the end of the story, the return to Eden. But before the return to Eden with the new heaven and the new earth, it is the return of the king, right? Who returns, as we read in our small group earlier in John 19, 11, through 15, the return of the word of God who comes this time not as a carpenter's son but riding on a white horse with a sword and he comes with diadems on his head. He comes as the king of kings and lord of lords.
Okay, so as you walk through scripture, you have it there. And I just encourage you to go through and just have that big picture as you walk through to realize as you read your Bible, you are walking in a story that is true and real and alive of which you were a part of, which was a story written by God. And it is written for us for one purpose and one reason, that you would know him and that you would have a saving relationship with him. And that saving relationship would come through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the cross and that is the death and resurrection. That's the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why John writes his gospel. Can I have my next slide, please? And so our focus this evening is the person of Christ. That's what you did in your FOF book. At the end of the day, God has given us his word so we know who Jesus is. And John writes what's the purpose of giving us this gospel he writes now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name and here John makes the stakes really really high He's saying, look, this is written and this is documented and this is the word of God given to you for a purpose and for a reason. It's not so you feel better about yourself. It's not so that you walk out and say, I know more about the Bible. Ultimately, it comes down to what you believe about Jesus of Nazareth. What you believe about Jesus of Nazareth. And for John and for the writers of God's word, that is everything. Everything that your life depends on, everything that your family depends on, everything your career depends on, every aspect of your life, it all comes down to this, what you believe about who Jesus is. Can I have my next slide, please? And so tonight I want to ask you this question as we consider the person of Christ, and this is the central crux of the entire Bible, okay? Who you believe about Jesus or what you believe about Jesus determines the life that you live. And the life you live reveals what you believe about Jesus. So what do you believe about Jesus? Okay. People come to me as a pastor and they, are you trying to read things into my life? What are you saying? It's like, hey, your life is not a hidden secret. The life that you live tells a story, and that story tells the world what you believe about who Jesus is. And every aspect of your life, everything that it will amount to, everything that it will come to, your marriage, your family, every aspect of your life, every relationship, it's going to come down to this, what you believe about Jesus. And belief being not a familiarity, we talked about this in our small group, yeah, I I believe that Barack Obama is a real person. I believe that Joe Biden's a real person. I believe Donald Trump's a real person, but that has no bearing on my life. Do I have confidence in those men? Probably not. Okay? But the idea of belief is that you would have a confidence and trust with which you would put the entirety of your life at stake. Your house, your wife, your children, everything you are going to make your decisions based on what you believe about who Jesus is. And as you look at the history of the world, 
It's come down to who Jesus is. When you look at the history of the church during the first three centuries, when you look at the Gospels, the debate is always, who is Jesus? What do you believe? That becomes the dividing line between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And even among the Pharisees and Sadducees, men like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, it's, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he truly of God? Is he truly the Son of God? Is he the Christ or is he not? That's the dividing line through all the Gospels. And in the churches, in the epistles, the dividing line, Paul goes over it over and over and over and over again. He keeps on coming back, talking about who Jesus is and what people believe in sound doctrine. The dividing line is what people believe about Jesus. And that decides what a heretic is and what a true child of God is. And then in the history of the church for the last 2,000 years in the history of the world, it's all come down to what people believe about who Jesus is. In Islam, they believe that Jesus was a prophet sent by God. That decides and determines and draws a line between Islam, okay, and their statement that they worship Allah, that it's the same as the God of the Bible. Well, it's not. The dividing line, what do they believe about Jesus? We talked in our group, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. They say they're Christians. What's the dividing line? It's what you believe about Jesus. And they distort that first four lines of the Gospel of John to say that Jesus is a God, not the God. He's not fully deep. He's a little lesser. And as you walk through, you see that at the heart of the issue here is what people believe about God, what people believe about His Word, and what people believe about His work. Those are the areas that everybody gets their pistols out and they start fighting over. Now we go down and say, well, it's about the praise music and it's about the carpet and it's about all of these things. But the heart of the issue in churches where division comes and where fights come, if you pull on that thread, it all comes back to what do you believe about Jesus? Recently we had an event in the church where there was someone who was a member of our church who came and said, I believe that there are some errors in the Bible and I believe there are errors in a particular parable that Jesus gave. So we went to one of the lead professors at TMS and the elders did and said, okay, is this a big deal or is it not a big deal? Should we make a big deal about this or should we just let it go? I mean, you know, you're talking about small portions. Yes, inerrancy. In the Christian world, there's all of these different places. And he said to us, look, there's three things that you need to consider that serve as the heart of Christianity. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the word of Christ. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the word of Christ. If you start chipping away at any of those things, you're no longer standing in the gospel. You're standing in a different religion. It is a big deal. And I would contend with you that every dispute that you have with your spouse, every dispute you have with your coworker, every dispute that comes up at the church, though they seem to be about secondary things, it really comes back to, are we submitted to who Jesus is? Are we submitted to what he says? And are we living according to what he did and what he does? Or is it about us? And when you look at all the false religions of the world and all the heresies of the world, what you see is they try and chip away at the greatness of Christ. Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. Jesus is not 
the Son of God who's equal with the Father and equal with the Spirit. He is a God. They chip away and they make it a little bit less. And you go through the history of Islam. He's a prophet. He's a good person. We need to listen to him. We need to follow him. But he's not God. And that's why you all are heretics. But you see that as we go through each one of these, they try and chip away either at Jesus' humanity or Jesus' deity. And they try and chip away at the work that he did on the cross. And they try and chip away at the word of God. Some of it's not correct. Why do we do that, brothers and sisters? We do that because we're making him smaller and we're making ourselves bigger. We want a savior who we can manage and we can manufacture and we can keep in our back pocket who works for us like a genie in a bottle. That is the propensity of the human heart. And you look at the pattern of cults and you look at the pattern of conflicts and you look at the pattern of every way the church has gone. Psh, and you go to our marriages, our home and our work. It's the same thing. When Christ becomes small and we become big, and we become the king, and he becomes the servant to wash our feet. And we just want him to be the servant to wash our feet, not the one we worship or follow. And we're in charge and we're in control. Then what ends up happening is sin and sinners are driving the car and it veers off the road. What's the flip side of that? When we see who Jesus truly is according to God's word, when we see what he's truly done for us, when we see and hear and listen and our lives are transformed by what he says, our lives are united with his and it's filled with the truth and grace of God. It's filled with his glory. It's filled with his righteousness and we become merciful people as we learned last Sunday. And our lives are taken out of all the ugliness of this world because it's united with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who's perfectly holy and good. So once again, where John is going with this gospel, what you believe about Jesus affects and changes everything. And so that brings us, can I have my next slide? What does the Word of God say about Jesus, this person of Christ? And is what we believe based on God's Word or is it based on our experience? Well, as you went through the FOF chapter 4, hopefully that was an encouragement to you. And as you read through Scripture, you see that on the one hand, what you have to contend with is that all the attributes of God that we find, beginning in the Old Testament and Genesis onwards, are displayed in the life of Christ. You walk through. Jesus is holy. In fact, in Luke, one of Peter's first encounter with Jesus, as Jesus performs this miracle, the fisherman, he's up all night. He can't find fish, but he's a fisherman. This should be his job. And Jesus says, cast the net on the other side. And he's like, but Lord, we did it already. I'm a professional fisherman. And then he casts it on the other side, and it's filled with fish. And what does Peter say? Depart from me, I am a sinful man. He realizes that the one who is in control of all of creation, there is only one who can occupy a place that not only knows where the fish are, but can bring the fish that is in complete command of every aspect of nature, including the fish who are there. The one who can walk on the water, the one who can control the wind and the storm, all of the aspects of 
the one true creator, Jesus exhibits all of the demonstrations of God's divine sovereignty and power. Jesus demonstrates. Okay, all of these things. Jesus is fully God. Okay, and where it brings us is this place that at the end of the day, is he truly God? If he is, then he's worthy of worship. Worthy of worship that we see in the Old Testament where when people encounter God, like Isaiah, they get terrified that they're about to be destroyed because they're sinful and they know God is holy and they know that they cannot stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And yet God provides for Isaiah a way to be forgiven, a way to be made whole. And then the question is, Lord, what can I do to serve you? Here am I, send me. Right? The entirety of a life given over to the God who saves. Well, we see all of that. But then we have to reconcile at the same time. We see someone who was born. We see someone who knows what it means to hunger and thirst. We see someone who, who knows what it means to be lonely. Someone who knows what it means to have a heart that is broken and grieved. A heart that knows what it means to be betrayed. And we see someone as we walk through when we come to the cross. Someone who knows what physical suffering is. And who knows what the brutality and ugliness of abuse is in this world. And ultimately who experiences death. And so as you walk through scripture there's no way you can deny that what is being presented is someone who is truly God and truly man. Now that's incredibly different from how most Christians function. We think of him as a myth. We think of him as someone, yes, he's special. And he's someone who lived a long time ago. And there's a great story built around it. But what is the actual impact in my daily life? Do we think of Jesus as being omnipresent? Do we think of him as being in the room in the discussions we have with our children? Do we think of him being present when no one is looking? And yet in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in the Great Commission, Jesus makes a statement to the disciples that he is going to be with them to the end of the age. Right? How do we reconcile this true God and true man? Well, this is what John does for us in John chapter 1. Can I have my next slide please? He describes Jesus. As being the word. What does that mean? And it becomes a little bit confusing. Because we use and we think about this. When we read this. In terms of what we typically read. We think of our words. Right? We don't think of the word as a person. But he writes in verse 1 and 2. In John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you drop down to verse 14, he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you probably noticed when you went through this with your group, by the time you get to verse 14, you realize, okay, we're talking about Jesus. Because typically we haven't heard about Jesus being described in this way. And as we've noted, John is writing around 80 or 90 AD. He's the last living apostle. The other disciples 
are dead. They've been martyred by and large. And John is also writing after the temple has been destroyed in 70 AD and Judaism has been destroyed. There are no longer any sacrifices and there is no longer a temple where allegedly the glory of God was to be present with his people. And John is presenting us from the very beginning with these first five verses and the 14th verse. He's telling us who Jesus is and why it makes a difference. And why we need to, quote-unquote, believe in him. And not just believe in him as a man, but believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. And why it changes everything. And it comes down to this title, word. He's used this term, word, as a personification of Jesus. What does he mean by it? Can I have my next slide? It helps to go and... Listen to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 through 3. He's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, You yourselves are our letter or our epistle of recommendation, written on, on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul uses this idea of words in a letter that's being written and he personifies it. He's saying to the Corinthian Christians, you're a letter. And he uses this metaphor, so to speak. Okay, And he points out that each one of us has a life. And each one of our lives has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And each one of our lives tells a story. And the question, of course, is what is the story that your life tells? And you live long enough. You're my age. You're 53. Okay? And you see and you've grown up with guys and you've been through college with them. Some have died and passed away. Some have left their wives. Some have become successful. Some. And you begin to see that there's a story that's unfolding. That part of it we came in part way through college. And it goes back even further for where they started in their homes. And it's gone on this trajectory. And their lives tell a story. Every life tells a story. And as we come to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, His life tells a story. But the word that is being referred to is the word of God, not the word of men. And that's what makes it different. Because my word has no special power. It's demonstrated in how many times I have to tell family members to do something or ask them for something, right? How much impact is it? How about in your life? How many times have I come alongside men and said, please read your Bible, please read your Bible, please read your Bible? How many times have I come along and said, hey, you're on a path if you continue to do this and it's in one ear out the other, right? My words have very little impact. I'm aware of that, but that's because I'm a man. And that's why we don't think very highly of the word. But when John is writing about the word, and he says, in the beginning was the word, he's not talking about the word or words of men. He's talking about the word of God. And he's making a direct reference when he says, in the beginning, to the book of Genesis. And when you go to the book of Genesis, God's word comes in with power and with force. And in the midst of darkness, it brings in light. And after it brings in light, 
it creates the entire universe and it brings life. That is an incredibly powerful word. And as you go through the Old Testament and the five books of Moses, repeatedly over and over again, God's word is something special. And your life depends on the word of the Lord. Can I have my next slide, please? In Scripture, the Word is God's holy revelation and giving of Himself. It's how God gives Himself to those He loves. It's how He reveals Himself, but it's how He makes things happen. And so when you read through the Old Testament, it is God's Word that brings about creation. It is God's Word that takes care of what we call providence. That every aspect of this universe, from the floods, to the tides, to the sun, to the food we eat, to the birds of the air, to every aspect, to the insects, to the mosquitoes who give us a hard time, every aspect is ruled and taken care of and ordained by the Word of God. Salvation, over and over and over again, it happens By the power and work of the word of God. Judgment. It happens by the word of God. God says something. And it's interesting. When you read the prophets. And you read Isaiah. And they write about things in the past tense. That are going to happen in the future. What are they doing? They call it in seminary. The prophetic future. When God tells them something. That is going to happen. For the prophets. It's as good as done. It's a reality. It doesn't matter that it's going to happen 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now. For the prophet, if God has said it, it is as good as done. It's going to happen. Write it in the past tense as a completed action. It's a guarantee. And so when John comes and he talks about the Word, and in the beginning was the Word, And he's using the word as a persona, Jesus as a personification and the word as a description of who Jesus is. He's demonstrating and showing and he says the word was with God and the word was God. He's showing that Jesus, before he came in the flesh, the Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, he is God, eternal, no beginning and no end, but he is distinct from God the Father. That there's this relationship between God the Father and God the Son that is intimate and close and united and yet they are distinct and yet they are both of the same substance and they are both God. And then he proceeds to show who Jesus was, what Jesus does in verse 3 through 5, but then what Jesus became for you and I. Or maybe it's more accurate not to say Jesus because that is who he became when he came in the flesh in the womb of a virgin. But before that, he is the eternal son of God. And he gives us in a nutshell the gospel. That the son of God 
who is the full revelation of who God is, who is the one who shows us who God is, who's the one who reveals who God is, who's the full radiance and image of the glory of God, God's infinite greatness and goodness, the one who is responsible for all of us, the one who gives meaning to all of us, without whom none of us exist, and the one who's holding everything together. This is who became a man for the purpose of what? Revealing the fullness of God's glory to us. That he would dwell. That term dwell means that he would tabernacle or come in a tent. The idea of God's Shekinah glory. So you go to the Old Testament and you realize this whole passage is based on who God is according to his word. That in the Old Testament God comes near his people by instructing them to build a tent And in that tent, the Shekinah, the dwelling glory of God will dwell. The infinite goodness by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day where the people will come and realize they shouldn't get too close. But God has provided a way to dwell with them. And he's provided a way to be with his people out of love for them. That he would live right there in the center. And in that time and place, all the tents of the tribes of Israel were around that tent in which the Lord dwelt, his Shekinah glory could be visibly seen. That people would know that the God who saved them is not far off. He's not Allah, the God of Islam. He is close, he is present, he's drawn near out of love for them and compassion and mercy for them. And so when we come to John chapter 1, John is showing us This is what the gospel is. That that entire story in the Old Testament is being written in the life of Jesus. That it was preparing the children of Israel to understand who Jesus is when he comes. That this is the glory of God in human form. That's the tabernacle which has come to be near us. Because we in our sinfulness can't come near to God. And so he sent his son to come near to us so that we could behold his glory, the fullness of his goodness and his grace. Well, where does that leave us? Can I have my next slide? I want to come down to the bottom. If Jesus is all of this, what does God want us to know about Jesus, who he is, the eternal son of God? The full revelation of God. That we cannot know God apart from Jesus. That the fullness of who God is. Is demonstrated in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does that mean to us? If this is who Jesus is. If this is who we really believe he is. What does that say about the lives that we are living? Okay. First, he's worthy of all worship. And he's worthy of all faith. And he's worthy of all obedience. He's worthy of it. He's the one who created us. Everything holds together in him. It ain't going to happen without him. Okay? And so the question that we hold our lives up to is, okay, are we living a life of worship? Are we willing to say, I'll put everything on hold, depending on what Jesus wants. Is my life being lived to please him? Or am I living to please myself? And so when we look at our lives, we say, you know, many times, if we're honest, we live as functional atheists, right? 
He's not present. He's not watching what I look on on my phone. He's not watching what I look. He's not omnipresent. He's not, he doesn't know what I'm, I'm doing during my off hours during work or when nobody's watching or looking. He's not listening when I speak to my wife. And when times are hard and I'm getting discouraged and it seems like nobody's around, he's not around. We tend to not believe this, brothers and sisters. Okay? But that's why God gave us his written word. So that we can read it and be reminded of who Jesus is and how much God loves us. And so I say this because the beginning of John calls us to repentance. It really does. All of us. Have we really honored Jesus for who he truly is according to God's word? But it should also be the source of encouragement. There's a verse I'm learning with our boys. It's in Joshua. And it's the repeated statement, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. It's a command that God gives Joshua. He says, be not dismayed and do not be afraid. I think it's Joshua 1.23 or 1.26. I can't remember. But then he goes on and says why they shouldn't be afraid. Why shouldn't they be afraid? Why should Joshua not be afraid as he leads the children of Israel into the promised land and he takes over the job that Moses really couldn't quite do? Big shoes to fill. This is because I am with you. Because I am with you. And the encouragement and the upside is if we really believe this, brothers and sisters, and believe that the creator of the universe, the eternal son of God, the one through whom everything was made, the one who is truly God and yet also truly man and understands what it means to be hurt, to be betrayed, to be hungry, to be lonely, who understands all of these things and has come and is with us and has drawn near to us so that we can experience the full goodness and glory of an infinite God. What a difference that should make in what we're afraid of. What a difference that should make in the things that we decide to do. What a difference that should make in the boldness with which we can move forward when the rest of the world is saying, I'm too scared, I can't do it. What a difference that can make to bring peace and harmony in a marriage and guidance when times are hard. Because the one who is with us is the eternal Son of God. Can I have my next slide? And the one after that. Okay, the final slide. Thank you. John Owen says, one of the greatest privileges and, and, excuse me, one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and to eternity, consists in their beholding the glory of Christ. Let me paraphrase that. The greatest joy you can have in this life and in the next life is beholding the infinite greatness and goodness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's a statement that John Owen made at the end of his life. He had lost, not, he had nine children. He'd lost nine of them. I think only one of them lived to ad, adulthood and he outlived her. Rough life to see all your children die. One of the greatest Puritan theologians. And at the end of his life, he brought it all down to this. It comes down to beholding the glory of Jesus. 
of seeing how great and how good he is, to see who he truly is. That's what it all is. And in fact, this entire life is a preparation. All your trials, all your tribulations, all your struggles, your marriage, your children, your family, everything that God has given you has been ordained by the Lord as a preparation so that you would be able to, for the rest of eternity, appreciate who Jesus is. It's all a preparation for that. And you're going to spend the rest of eternity either appreciating and beholding the glory of God as a child of God, or you're going to spend the rest of eternity appreciating who Jesus is, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess with regret that you didn't live for Him or that your heart wasn't prepared for Him and that you missed out because we were pursuing crap in this world. And that's a battle that we all struggle with. And so that's one of the reasons why John Owen's writing this. But it's also the reason why John wrote this gospel. So that you might believe. And through believing that you might have life in his name. And the life that he's talking about is a life of beholding the glory of Christ. So that raises the question, how do we behold the glory of Christ? And the answer is by faith through his word. In this life, until Christ comes again, either we die and our spirit goes to heaven and we see him face to face, or he comes again and the return happens while we're still alive and we get a chance to see him. Until we see him in that way during this time, it is by faith through his word, through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why, brothers and sisters, we gather every Sunday. That's why we do a midweek Bible study. When you're tired and exhausted, and I know, and to think about these things is hard. Our flesh wages war against it. But why do we do that? Because it's by faith through his word that you get a chance for 10 or 15 minutes to stop looking at the things of this world and you get a chance to hear how great this Savior and King is who you have and how great is the one who is with you, how he has died for you, how he intercedes on your behalf and how he is present with you in every aspect of your life. You might not feel it, you might not see it, but then you come and read God's word. And I will say, it's from, through some of the hardest things that God has brought Julie and I through. And then we open up our scriptures and we see, whoa, it's true. I had it backwards. It is so true. He is alive. He is present in our life. He is working in our home and he is working in our family. So it's by faith through the word of God. The question is, why don't we do this more often. Well, we wage a war in our hearts, brothers and sisters. He writes that in those first five verses. He talks about the light coming in, but the darkness not overcoming it. And he talks about people in the darkness who don't want the light and they don't want to receive the light because they love darkness and they love the deeds of darkness. So we've got to be honest with ourselves. The reason we struggle is because we have darkness in our hearts. And some of us in different areas, we love that darkness. That darkness can be our job. That darkness can be our career. That darkness can be our family. That darkness can be anything that could be a good thing, but we put it over and above Christ, right? But what's the good news? The good news in John 1 verse 5 is he says, the light came into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it, which means he's greater. And the good news that comes from what John is writing is where does he bring us to? We've got to come back 
and begin believing in who he is according to his word. And the sweetness of this and the reason why John is writing is the light has already come to you. You have the opportunity to draw near to that light and to cast off the darkness by faith. By faith in receiving Christ for who he truly is and allowing him to stand in your life as King of kings and Lord of lords and as the eternal Son of God. So brothers and sisters, that leaves us with a choice. And hopefully we'll walk out with a choice that will encourage and uplift and remind us of the goodness that's been given to us. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we struggle to see who you truly are. And yet the greatest blessing we will ever have is beholding, as John Owen said, your glory in this life and the next life. Lord Jesus, help us not to waste any time. Help us, Lord, to struggle with our flesh and overcome it by faith, overcoming sometimes how we feel and what the day has put before us. To spend time with you in the word and in prayer, beholding your goodness and glory, beholding your greatness, all that you are, to begin seeing what you are doing in our hearts and our lives and with gratitude and joy being encouraged and strengthened and to be men who are not dismayed or frightened but men who are strong and courageous because by your spirit and by faith we see that the one who is with us is the one who has conquered sin and death and rules over all things. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be men such as these And that this light that would live in our hearts would change how we interact with our spouses, our children, our work. And that we would go forth and be bright lights so that others might see the story that is written in our lives is a story that is written by your word, not ours. In your name we pray, amen.